Hey guys, thanks for joining me again on the breakdown. Election results are now just under two weeks away. There's still two phases of voting left, including in my native Popal. We'll see how that goes. But to sum up the sort of election campaign we've seen, I think it's quite simply split in three Ds. It's been divisive, it's been digressive, and it's been disappointing. We haven't really seen our politicians put issues off this election and off the people at its core. What we've rather seen is this blabbering battle and mudslinging on both sides. So what we'll try to do today is talk about the state of the Modi economy. And then in tomorrow's episode, we'll actually talk about the policy proposals for the economy around this election. I know it can be a little wonky at times, so I hope you guys bear with me. And I'm going to be joined by Mr. Sandeep Suktankar, who's an associate professor for economics at the University of Virginia. And he's going to be joining me from Charlottesville via Skype. Hope you enjoy. All right, guys. Joining me now is Sandeep Suktankar. He's an associate professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Virginia. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Sandeep, for having me. Great. Sandeep, before we get into the economy and all the good stuff related to it, you know, give me a view of how this election has been viewed from the U.S. We're almost getting to the end of it, but how have you seen it broadly evolve? Um, yeah, so the U.S. has not had, um, the U.S. press has not had a huge sort of deep um, involvement in, in the Indian elections. Most of the time what we get here are things about its size um, or sort of, sort of niche stories like the poll officials who traveled and hiked through the forest to find the one voter or something like that. So unfortunately, the U.S. Uh, um, elections are coming up next year and the Democratic Party has a number of candidates. Seems like every day we find a new yeah. candidate. And the press seems to be mostly focused on that. In, in England, uh, there's, there's been a lot more coverage. So I know, for example, that uh, BBC has... Uh, all the senior correspondents, all the India's senior correspondents actually traveled to India picking up stories. Yeah, yeah. From the depth analysis, which is actually fantastic. Um, but here, it's, it's, it's not, uh, you know, it's, it's far away. It's not such a huge note in your story. Yeah, I guess, you know, the U.S. is keeping busy with, the, with its own drama. And we should say that there are a couple of Indian origin candidates in the mix. So, you know, we'll, uh, we'll be rooting for them on a personal level. But let's get into our own sort of drama. You know, let's talk about the economy broadly. So the, the way the Indian economy is looked at in this country is that we love to speak about things like the size of the GDP and the GDP growth rate. And India's growth has been quite good when you look at the UPA years when we were growing around 8%. But even in the years of the NDA government in the last five years, the Indian economy has been relatively steady when it comes to growth. However, those are not the only sort of metrics that should be looked at when it comes to the economy. You know, we should also look at whether this growth has created employment and whether it has improved people's lives. How do you view the state of the Indian economy over the last five years? So I think uh, it's been plugging along as uh, usual, which is uh, for for some parts a, a reasonably good thing. But uh, we have not seen the type of large-scale reforms that, let's say, one might have thought would have come about from a party uh, with 
uh, a majority in in parliament. Um, and, right. And, and so that's that's definitely not something we've seen. We we have seen the DSP um, being brought in, and I think you know obviously there are implementation issues, and there's it's not it's far from perfect. But, right. And I think in the long run that would be a good thing. But for example, large scale reforms in the banking sector. Um, in rural areas, rural infrastructure, lots of rural policies, right. uh, as well as things like labor reform, we have not seen on a large scale. And I think, uh, you know, I think that may be, it, it's difficult to say with certainty, but I think some of these things may be contributing to the kind of growth that we're seeing where, right. yes, it's, it's good, but but uh, is, it, is it good enough to sort of really lift um, lots and lots of people out of poverty as well as right. improve the lives of the middle class. So you said that there there need to be some sort of large-scale changes if we want to see these incomes rise. Can you give us a really brief idea of what these kind of systemic changes look like? Because you also said in the introduction that uh, you know the BJP roared with a really strong mandate and they had this kind of blank slate to perform some of these reforms. So what would some of these reforms look like? So, um, so I guess I, I can talk about two examples. So one, sure. one, um, one issue with this, in, in nearly every state in India, the governments provide free electricity to farmers. Um, now, what people don't realize that is that 80% of the benefits go to, you know, the top 10 or 20% biggest farmers. Right. Yet, anyone who wants to say take this away. Um, is um, you know it's considered anti-farmer. No political right. party will, will want to test this. Right. The problem is that that what this means is that the electricity utilities cannot recoup their costs. Right. So they can't put in power lines that provide efficient power uh, to rural areas. They they cannot put in rural industry is basically the biggest sort of sufferer or the the the, the, the industry that takes the biggest hit. Uh, in this case, is in this case. So, so you, if you want to set up factories, or if you even is just a small scale unit in rural areas, you to get three phase power supply. For the most part, you're going to have to lay your own lines to the substation, right? So this is right. just uh, insane. So that's one example. The other examples are are related to the incredibly tangled web of subsidies and different types of benefits going to different sectors. So I was just. Uh, so my experience here is, is in the sugarcane sector. Yeah. And and it's, if you, I was again talking to a to a journalist about this, and it's it's so insane. Uh, you know, he was saying how it's just crazy to him. They called it a tangled web. Yeah. Uh, of on the one hand regulating sugarcane prices, on the other hand regulating sugar prices. Right. Deciding where, when, and where sugar can be sold at what sure. at prices at what levies. Um, playing this sort of constant balancing act between the farmers and the mills and, you know, at the one time trying to support farmers, on the other hand, um, bailing out mills when they end up um, yep. in arrears. So, it, it, and and then overall, in the long run, it's just a, a, a sinkhole of, of cash and nothing, nothing really changes. So, uh, so I think those sorts of things are difficult to uh, to reform yeah. uh, broadly, and I mean just thinking 
at, on, a, on a big scale, what what should you do? Uh, I think is, is going to be is, is going to be important. So it, it's not like there's no uh, efforts, right? So for example, in Telangana, um, yeah. again, before their state elections, they had this right to bundle scheme, which basically just gave out cash to farmers. And yeah. I think that's uh, that's uh, a reasonable start because right now the complicated set of distortions that you have in rural agriculture yeah. are just crazy and, and I think you know instead the uh, a sort of um, if you want to resolve farmer distress I think a simple cash payments probably have yeah. uh, a decent chance of any the only problem with this is this was highly regressive right because yeah. you paid 4,000 rupees per acre um, and again, so which means that the largest farmers are going to get the largest amount, um, which again doesn't doesn't seem to to make sense uh, in from a sort of redistributive perspective. As well as if you think yeah. that smaller farmers might have uh, you know higher returns to capital, uh, that uh, also doesn't seem to make sense from an efficiency perspective. These are some unenviable problems for sure, because this does sound like a balancing act especially in the agrarian sector. Um, you know, all I can say to the incoming government is that there is a man called Sandeep Suktankar who might be able to help after the election. Who knows, they might throw you a job offer, Sandeep. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyways, I, we, we still need to speak a little bit more about the Modi uh, economy and how it's performed. One of the ideas which was introduced, and I want to come to demonetization, but I do want to speak about the goods and services tax which was an idea also in the previous UPA government and it was introduced. And the sort of consensus that I've seen in discourse is that on the net, it seems like a good idea for the long term, but its implementation wasn't very good. Can you talk to us briefly about the goods and services tax and how it has performed and how is it how it has benefited or not benefited people? First of all, let me say that any sort of big policy like this is is going to be difficult, and this is not the case for India. is it, in no no way a special case, right? right. Take take example of the U.S. and and U.S. healthcare and Obamacare. It's right. a very very difficult issue, and and you have a lot of back and forth, and you have different uh, incentives, you have different ideologies, and it's, yeah. it's very hard to to implement something on. Uh, the scale of the entire country. So I think uh, I, I think that has to be uh, true. So I think it, given that, it's not surprising at all that there were implementation issues. But I think some of the implementation issues could be could have been resolved, right? So I mean, if the point was to 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 simplify the tax structure, then it, it doesn't make sense to have uh, the numerous different types of right. labs and yeah. different rates and then changing that around all the time uh, you know that 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 just seems difficult and and i mean that that seems avoidable yeah. and i think that, that there definitely could have been a better job uh done there um but you know i think i think having said that um i i don't i don't see rigorous uh, evidence yet of of how that is going to for um a big changes um, but there's anecdotal evidence, right? So yeah. I've seen evidence on, on, let's say, even the, the transport and trucking industry. That used to be a big disaster. And yeah. people have already started making investments in, in, in this, anticipating that this will, be, this will make transportation of goods easier. Right. Right. If, if, right. if it's just that sector 
for example, the the efficiency gains from from having sort of centralized yeah. accounts, uh, for example, would be in, in absolutely enormous. We have to, to speak about the elephant in the room because a lot of people have been asking me for clarity on this and uh, there's no better person to ask uh, this week. You know, Arvind Subramaniam said that demonetization was one of the unlikeliest economic experiments in modern Indian history. And it was drastic to say the least. Perhaps two hours before midnight on 7th of November 2016, the Prime Minister rocked up on the television and said that 500,000 rupee notes would be a thing of the past by midnight. And they introduced a new 500,000 rupee note. How do you see that? So first of all, how do how do you put an economic basis around a thing like demonetization? I mean, we have seen something similar implemented in Europe for the 500 euro note. Uh, is there an economic logic for a move like demonetization and also the way it was conducted? Um, it, it's going to be very, very hard to <laughs> come up with uh, an economic logic. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, sure, it was done with the 500 euro note, but first of all, there, there, there's huge differences, right? 500 euros um, uh, is very different from a thousand rupees. A thousand rupees is, is, is barely, it's, you know, it's not even 20 euros. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Different. And clearly, the 500 euro notes were uh, in use uh, mostly for what what people thought were, were sort of illegal activities. Right, yeah. Whereas in India, 500 and 1,000 rupee note in a, an economy like India, which is so cash reliant yeah. uh, still, they, they are going to be used very, very, very broadly. Um, and uh, it, it, just, it just sort of strains logic that, that you'd want to do this. And, and, and you can see by, by the shifting goalposts that, it, that, it, that the, the government used to, to measure its supposed success, that it, that it clearly actually was a complete uh, disastrous failure, right? So first, yeah. it was all about rooting out corruption. Yeah. But I mean, who's going to be sitting, you know, if you, should, if you just think about the scale of corruption, if you have very large, if you're, you know, if you're right. yeah. corrupt in a large amount, you can't store like a, a hundred million dollars worth of money in, in 1,000 rupee notes. Yeah, right? yeah. Nobody has You've already converted it into real estate, or you're already sitting yeah. in, in Swiss banks or in the Middle East. I mean, so India, India is the country which gave the they gave the world the word jugar. So I think people definitely found ways to do it. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, nobody's first of all sitting on very large piles of cash. Um, you know, whatever medium-sized piles of cash that you may have, eventually you end up um, being able to to get that back in the system. And and this was clear when the RBI sort of in uh, a low-key announcement that eventually did get picked up was suggesting that over, I don't know what it was exactly, over 99% of the notes were Yeah, that's so, true. Yeah. So it's not like you actually got rid of a lot of black money. Uh, in fact, you didn't at all. So so, so even 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 that goalpost uh, got changed to say, oh, no, 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 this is not about yeah. black money. This is about getting India into the digital age. Right, but right, yeah. That was the case. There's, there's many other policies that should have been followed before right. uh, something as, as drastic as, as demonetization. One of the defenses that the BJP came up with, and you know, you spoke about this in the context of the goods and services tax earlier, was that any move like this kind of requires this sort of Gandhian idea of sacrifice or something like that. And they did say that our move was vindicated by the fact that 
we won a major election in Uttar Pradesh a few months after demonetization. But since you work in the development sector, Sandeep, can you explain the sort of uh, negative effect it had on the most vulnerable parts of the Indian economy, especially? Because those are really the parts of the economy which run exclusively on cash. And some of these people were really adversely affected by this move. Yeah, so I mean, I guess just just if you think about the the efficiency losses to begin with, right? Like just the the amount of time that people had to to, to spend to do the conversion, that's just a direct efficiency loss uh, to the economy. And then for the businesses that are that are reliant on on cash for their business uh, for conducting their operations for uh, a significant proportion of time when. Uh, things weren't in flux. People didn't have access to new notes. So it wasn't clear whether old notes were going to be accepted right. at all. Um, your business activity actually suffers. This is again going to directly affect your uh, your income and as well as uh, your bottom line and as well as GDP, right? Yeah. And so that um, uh, that that that's sort of fairly clear, and it's very clear that that uh, has happened. Um, again, it will be a while before we know what the true impacts were, and, and that, of course, has been made difficult by uh, the government trying to right. make access to economic data also um, uh, difficult. Um, although, to be fair, just recently, apparently, the Ministry of Statistics and Planning just yeah. made available a bunch of micro data for from the past. From That's right, yeah. There's uh, which I think definitely a very positive move. Right. Uh, just to wrap up on the Modi economy specifically, one of the big pushes of the Prime Minister Modi, his big forte over the last few years have been these visits to foreign countries to propose or to show off India as a potential destination uh, uh, to create goods, to become a manufacturing hub. And, you know, we saw these really high-profile visits to the U.S., but also countries in Europe, Modi addressed both Wembley and Madison Square Garden. Uh, do you think this sort of diplomatic push from the Prime Minister himself has uh, improved our chances with the economy when it comes to the rest of the world? Or are we? was it just a little show on the side? I mean, I think I, think I probably, I mean, unless there was any sort of actual contract sign and uh, incentive that, that may pay off in the long run, Offered to companies, I think it's probably mostly a, a PR exercise, right? I, yeah. I don't, I don't see anything concrete come out in a in a large way um, that that's going to really affect the the economy. Okay, great. Um, it, there we should say that if if you want a recent example of this, it comes from uh, the the U.S. Iran relationship where India was exempt from U.S. sanctions while it bought oil from Iran. However, I believe that exemption has just been taken away. So there are diplomatic loopholes that India still needs to get through if you know it wants to create its own terms for the trade in the world. So that was the first part of my conversation with Sandeep. I want to leave you with the idea that when it comes to the economy, all that glitters is in gold. Because even though India's GDP has been rising, the growth rate has been quite good. It hasn't really translated into the number of people coming out of poverty as one would expect with the economy growing like that. That's an idea for you to ponder on. And tomorrow, you'll hear some more ideas about this election in specific. Thank you.